0: This may sound silly, but David tells me he's seen a
1: spaceship. You're
2: listening to UFO Law. I'm Richard Wilson. In late December 1980, a US Air Force security patrol stationed at RAF Woodbridge reported a series of unexplained lights in the skies over Reddish Forest, a mixed woodland just inland from the Suffolk coast. With them was the Deputy Base Commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt. Their accounts of the two nights they spent investigating the lights have since become an important touchstone in modern ufology. Indeed, the events of Rendlesham are referred to by some as Britain's Roswell, although some have other more earthly explanations, including a nearby lighthouse, a meteor, and brighter-than-usual celestial bodies. In this episode of UFO Law, Dr. David Clark talks to two people with a unique connection to those events 40 years ago, John Burrows and Jenny Randalls. John was there that Boxing Day night and is one of the key witnesses to the Rendlesham puzzle. Today, he lives in Illinois and is the editor of a new book, Weaponization of an Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. According to John, the inexplicable and unfathomable events of Rendlesham deeply impacted his life. In the last decade, he's undertaken both a public and a private investigation looking for answers. Jenny, along with Brenda Butler and Dot Street, was one of the first civilians to launch an inquiry into the case. She is the author of numerous books and articles about UFOs and strange phenomena. During her career as an author and broadcaster, Jenny made a large contribution to public understanding of the UFO phenomenon. And of course, David Clark also has a special connection to Rendlesham. He used UK freedom of information legislation to uncover Ministry of Defence documents relating to the incident. Here are their stories.
1: Okay, welcome to this special edition of UFO Law. And this is to mark the 40th anniversary of probably one of the best known incidents in ufology. Um, Second only to the famous Roswell incident. Uh, the 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 mysterious events at Rendlesham Forest near RAF Woodbridge in Suffolk um, in December 1980 have become a modern legend, and we're really um, honoured tonight to be invite to be able to invite two of the key people who have been involved in this story right from the very beginning onto the show. The first one is um, John Burroughs. Hello, John. Hello, Dave. Great. It's great to have you here. I'm looking forward to uh, talking to you in sh- shortly. And I just want also to say hello to Jenny Randalls.
0: Hello there. Hi.
1: Thanks, Jenny, for coming on. Um, I'm not going to say any more about um, the, the introduction to the story because I think everyone um, who's tuned in tonight will, will know something about it. So I, I want to, I want to get, make as much time available as possible, both to John and to Jenny, to tell their respective stories. So first of all, over to you, John.
3: Well, thanks, Dave. The As Dave said, most people probably tuning in have a decent idea of what took place with the incident, but I'll do a quick recap. Uh, it started out, the incident started out at about 0300 on the morning of December 26th, which was Boxing Day. I was on patrol with my supervisor when he spotted strange lights coming out of the sky into the forest. He got my attention. He asked me if I'd seen anything like that before, and I said no. We decided to go ahead and which was I always thought was strange because he was pretty about by the book guy, but he wanted to, before we called it in or anything, to uh, open the gate, go down the road to the edge of the forest to see if we get a better idea of what we might be dealing with. We did that. Once I got out of the vehicles, it there was strange feeling in the air. There were strange lights in the woods. Came back up, called in the incident on phone, the secure landline, so it wouldn't go over the radio. Um, the desk sergeant who I'd had history with practical jokes and stuff, it was Christmas night in the Boxing Day morning, kind of thought I was trying to pull a fast one on him. And even after Stephens got on, Bud Stephens got on to reaffirm to him that it was real, he still thought something might be up. So he transferred it to CSC. When we got up, when CSC came on the line, we briefed them again. At that point, they sent down the security patrol supervisor, which was uh, Sergeant Peniston to verify what we were saying the interesting thing was it kind of immediately blew up because the uh comptroller said that go down and investigate a possible ufo so that basically silenced everything on the radio and everybody was listening very intently what was going to happen next then got down verified some stuff as far as strange stuff was in the forest um, his story is at first between him, what was going on with CSC and the ship commander, and the fact that they had contacted radar. Not only our radar system, which was ad tech in the radar and Eastern radar, was contacted Heathrow this something was seen on radar over the area and disappeared. So at that point, the ship commander authorizes to go off base, which is not normal because this was outside the perimeter and it wasn't an immediate threat, but because something may have crashed he felt he authorized us to go out into the woods. We went on to the woods. We had a strange encounter um, where the three of us, it was Airman Kabansak, Sergeant Penniston, and I got close to something. Um, Each one of us views it differently. Um, We had it go up and go away. Uh, Again, each one of it remembers it differently, how when we interacted with it and what it did. um, We chased it out into the farmer's field towards the coast, and it disappeared. Um, so that's a, a brief summary of the first night when I was out there. Also, the fact is, is when I first went out there as a young airman, um, my interest in any of this was zero. I mean, there was no internet, none of this stuff. Uh, I was just enjoying life, having a good time. And and when it all went down, afterwards, when the, when the uh, chain of command started getting involved, I just was like, fine. What you got to do, I can't explain it. I let it go. But obviously, it caught back up with me later. But ultimately, over the years, and like you said, I do have a book coming out here shortly. I've done a lot of work in investigation and stuff where I think I've narrowed it down pretty close to it could have happened.
1: OK, I think that is a really good place just to pause now and hand over to Jenny, because at the point you know, where you sort of disappeared from the story slightly, John, that's when Jenny started looking into it. And I'm talking like the early 1980s. So, Jenny, do you want to take up the, um, the story from there and say how you got involved in this story?
0: Yeah, sure. At the time, the late 1980, I was investigating a case that had fallen into my lap because it happened. The person who was one of the witnesses, in fact, the key witness, Alan Godfrey, a police officer, had had an experience in his patrol car. And that became a very famous case. Um, But his sergeant was, in fact, my cousin's husband. And so I found out about it very, very quickly. And I was in that, when I got uh, a letter from a witness who was in Portugal on the night of the first night of the Rendlesham Forest event. Before, of course, that was common knowledge. This was early January. And I followed it up, not thinking very much of it, because they described, he described how he and a friend had seen this strange object coming over the coast and the beach and churning up the water below. And how, as a consequence of this, they suffered extreme physiological effects uh, where they felt ill and their skin. And the following morning, despite this being late at night and um, in the middle of winter, uh, their faces were red and sunburnt. So I was investigating that case without being aware that other events had happened on that particular night, when I then got contacted by a fellow writer who was interested in the paranormal, and I knew a little bit, uh, but wasn't himself personally interested in UFOs. And by chance, he and his wife had met a man in a pub in and around where they lived in East Anglia. And he was a radar officer working with the uh, Ministry of Defence at RAF Watton. He was a civilian, not an RAF officer. And he had had an experience where he was working and uh, they were contacted by people from the government saying, we've got all this kerfuffle going on in one of the U.S. Air Force bases down in Suffolk. Uh, They're seeing strange things in the the forest, objects in the sky. What have you got on radar? and um, he was asked to submit information as to what he saw. He personally did not see anything on radar at that time, but it then became obvious as they all started discussing this and trying to figure out what was going on, that there had already been a previous incident um, shortly before, earlier that Christmas weekend, uh, when they had tracked something on radar, which was coming in off the coast, and one of his fellow officers described this, and... Passed all this information on downstream to the Ministry of Defence. And before they knew where they were, um, both the MOD and the US Air Force got interested in this and wanted to come and access all their material and try and figure out what it was that was going on. Because they said some big incident had occurred in the forest and he was able to relate Bits and pieces of information about what supposedly happened, for instance, described the fact that a live tape recording had been made. This is the end of January, beginning of February 1981, long before that was acknowledged. And other things which ultimately was obviously directly connected with the case so that we know this was a genuine incident. And uh, he didn't want publicity. He, He said he might compromise his job, but he wanted to tell his story. And really, it was as far as that went. And then I realised that this was something that needed to be investigated locally. So through my work at the British UFO Research Association, I contacted one of the local investigators uh, and they got someone local who was Dot Street to, to investigate with her friend Brenda Butler was already aware of the case from local witnesses and people who were talking about it and things that they'd seen in the area. So these three different strands all came together and this was by the first few days of February 1981 when we started to coordinate what we were doing and figure out something big clearly had happened for all these different pieces of information to come from separate sources and work out what it was if we could which of course was uh, easier said than done.
1: Okay, so Jenny, at what age did you first meet John or become aware that um, John was one of the key um, eyewitnesses who were involved?
0: Um, Well, I personally didn't actually get to Rendleton Forest for quite a while. It was probably about 18 months before I got down there. Uh, Most most of the investigation in the early days was done by uh, Brenda and Dot. My job was trying to get information out from the sources that I had contact with at the Ministry of Defence, because, of course, at that time there was no freedom of information, and getting information out of the MOD about UFO cases was extremely difficult. So I sent a series of letters to and forth to them, um, and I used the people I knew who had contacts with the Ministry of Defence, trying to figure out a way to find out what they knew. And it was a, a brick wall for quite some time, and it was really only towards the end of um, 1982 when uh, bits and pieces of information started to filter out. And I understood it was clear that they knew something had happened, but they didn't actually lit- confirm that to me in writing until um, the early part of 1983. And once I had that written information from them confirming that an incident had occurred, and that it was unexplained, they made that quite clear. The letter that they sent to me, and and everything sort of clicked into place because now we had that information to go on and try and press government sources and people who might be able to open corridors and get through the veil of secrecy, which at that time the Ministry of Defence was. And, of course, most of the UFO community at that point in Britain certainly didn't believe anything had happened because there were no stories were bits and pieces of information that had gone into the media, but it was unproven. And most of the witnesses, of course, were not talking about it. Even the civilian ones were pretty... Um, wary of going public with what things had happened to them and Brenda and Doc were finding various people like that and I was talking to them as well and we were trying to coordinate a way trying to persuade the UFO community really to take this whole thing seriously because they thought we were crackpots frankly they thought that we were making something out of absolutely nothing and that this was just yet another tall tale being spun probably by airmen who were drunk because it was Christmas and um, don't believe a word of it, prove it, more or less, they said to us, before they would take it seriously. And that didn't really happen until just a few weeks before the story broke publicly uh, on the front page of the News of the World
1: in the autumn of 1983. Okay, thanks, Jenny. John, c- c- do you remember that period? Do you remember the um, the story breaking in the news at the time? And uh, can you tell us something about, um, about that, what you remember about it? Sure.
3: Um... Completely caught off guard. Uh, I can't remember whether it was Jenny or Dot or even Brenda Butler. It might have probably was Dot, just because I guess she ran a horrific uh, phone bills, Started to try to call where I lived. I had a group, Ray Boche, uh try to contact me. I had um, Greenwood. Several people were, my phone was ringing off the hook all of a sudden, because I had no idea any of this had happened. And then the big call came in from CNN. And that's when everything got really interesting because Chuck Carl was on the phone, was coming to Phoenix, was going to meet with me no matter what. I was kind of like, uh, I'm not talking to you any differently than anybody else. But I, because it was CNN, I had to notify the Air Force, which ended up being public affairs. Public affairs was notified. You should have seen their eyes roll at me when I first told them um, that afternoon when I went in and tried to let them know what was going on. So I left, went to work. Nothing was said. Next morning, nothing was said. I came back to go to work the next afternoon, and I got pulled off of uh, arming up and taken down the hallway with my flight chief going, what did I just get into because the Pentagon's on the phone wanting to talk to me. The commander's up there. They won't tell him anything. Went in into the secure area, went on a secure line. The commander, I had to ask him to leave. On the line was uh, uh, I think he was a two-star from the Pentagon, and then a guy that was involved in the whole thing by the name of Captain Graham. He had actually got into public affairs, and I got a really interesting briefing from him that I can't really say a lot about, other than what they told me was simply this: that that I had to speak with the Carl, and I kind of tried to get out of it. The general reminded me who he was and said I had to meet with them off base in civilian clothes to confirm an incident took place, but to not. Um, say anything more other than than the HALT memo itself, which I had no idea what it was. And then I was also back briefed on a guy by the name of Larry Warren, who was running his mouth about stuff. That, um, you know, they claimed it wasn't true. Graham tried to reinforce that to me. And I'm like, I have no idea what Larry Warren's saying. I have no idea what's in the memo. Again, I would just like to not do this, but I, I was forced to meet with the Carl. Um, when I saw the memo, it was full of errors. All I told to Carl was, yeah, something happened. This is not a true story. The memo itself is not factual on what really took place. I really don't want to talk to you anymore. And he was nice enough to, to let me um, go. He actually said, fine. You know." And there was only a brief summary of some of us that he contacted. that wouldn't go on camera. But that led to me getting sent overseas to Korea, which at the time I didn't know. But I was at Osan. Halk got put at Coonson as the base commander. Williams was PACAF commander over all, both of us. We were headed over there to keep us from the press when the story broke. So that kind of uh, killed the story as far as three of people that, you know, had a lot more to say couldn't be accessed because Carl tried to get back to all three of us over there and he couldn't get a visa. But one of the most interesting things was, it sticks with me to this day, was that CNN was initially told that it was a disgruntled airman that was talking about an incident, some of the stuff that took place, and they thought it was me. So that always stuck with me based off of it was really Larry Warren, who was the one that was spewing out stuff about the incident, but they were concerned enough to try to credit the incident, and they thought it was me talking about it. So I always found that kind of interesting, you know, as far as that I wasn't saying a word. I. Kept my mouth shut the whole time, and then the news of the world broke, and everything changed for me from that point going forward.
1: No, it's, in, it's interesting that you mentioned the uh, the, the Colonel Holt's memo because that is obviously the um, the story that the news of the world ran with, and that is all they had at that time. And it's interesting that you're saying that when you first read that, you you immediately realized it was full of errors. I mean, that's always puzzled me. Why do you think it, it was full of errors? Why did he get the dates and times so wrong? As
3: you know, you were part of the weaponization of an unidentified aerial <laughs> phenomena. I kind of lay it all out in the book, so I don't want to say too much to spoil the book. But it, it's clear that um, if you look at it from my background in the military, I spent twenty-seven years in, that the memo was written, and you can you know, I've been able to talk to different people inside the chain of command that how the memo was handled and you dealt with the Colonel Conrad that laid out some of the memo and, um, and then Williams has gone on the record denying anything about the memo. But ultimately, the memo was not meant to be released, number one. And number two, it was not meant to, to give all the information as they claim it was sent up to the MOD. But if you really look at it, there were people down there from the M.O.D. almost from the, the next day going forward that were involved with this, investigating and looking at it. So it's clearly it was a cover memo that was written. I stayed C.Y.A., some of it. And it ultimately what I said it led to was we're going to reference his memo, which in reality, most people would just take it as just something strange. Happened in the woods, in He combined several different nights together. I had the dates wrong, the time and everything else wrong. And it, and at that time frame when it first came out, there's no way to do a lot of research into it. But as over the years, people started looking at police logs and everything else, it became clear the dates and times and stuff were wrong, and the story was all run together. And it also kept from FOIA being done at least early on.
1: Okay, what do, what do you think about that, Jenny? Because you you were uh, you, you were obviously involved in in the original uh, when the when the Holt memo first emerged. How do you feel about the way that happened and the errors in the memo right from the very beginning?
0: Well, what was interesting was that when I first got told by the MOD, which came out of the blue in April 1983, so about six months before the story broke in the news of the world, um, that the incident had happened and it was real. The first thing I did, of course, was the information that they had on the case uh, at the MOD, And there was a protracted silence. And um, Brenda Dot and I got together and tried to figure out what we were going to do about this because we were still having great difficulty persuading the UFO community in Britain to take us seriously. They literally thought we were three women who were just making this whole thing up and there was nothing to it. And it's all a load of stories. And let's have a real case, you know, a little light in the sky where we can talk to the witness. and, And we felt that there was something big going on here, but we couldn't prove it. So what we did do was we actually went to London together and unannounced, we actually went to the Ministry of Defence main building in in Whitehall and we asked to see someone working for the UFO department there. And um, we uh, were quite blasé about this because um, we didn't know exactly what would happen because Everything was under the Official Secrets Act then. There was no freedom of information, no data that was being released to the public at all, really, about this thing. Um, But ultimately, I think possibly to their surprise, um, they did come down and they did come and talk to us. And we talked to the person who was in charge of the Ministry of Defence, public face of UFOs at that time. Pam Titchmarsh was who she was. And um, uh, we asked if we could have uh, the actual documentation that they'd got uh, which of course they told us they, they waffled around a lot because I'm, I'm sure we caught them on the hop and they didn't really know what to say and um, I, I suspect she'd taken some kind of an instruction in advance. Um, we asked them if they had tracked anything on radar and did they have any evidence of that and um, she mentioned that um, by chance they'd have been discussed as part of an exercise in training officers this particular case to show a case where radar tapes were accessed to see if there was anything tracked but as it turned out it was negative and that's usually what happens she said we never find any actual evidence to back it up and that happened here um so we went away really with nothing but the fact that we had caught the MOD on the hop and we can look back at that now because of course thanks to you Dave, with the way that the data has been released over the last 10-20 years you can see the trail of evidence as to what happened next and how she went away and tried to figure out how they were going to get out of this hole that they were in knowing that we now knew things that they didn't and I of course told them about the fact that I had spoken to a radar officer and they didn't know about this radar officer because it was a person who'd never gone public and discussed it. And to this day, that person has not gone public. It's not any of the witnesses who've talked about radar to anybody. A lot of people think it is, but it isn't. Um, I've kept his confidentiality as I promised I would do. I've spoken to him more, more recently than that. I, I know where he is now. But um, he still does not want to talk openly about it. And um Uh, she was trying to figure out whether or not they could tell us anything. And you can see from the trail of data there that they became very, very close to actually releasing the uh, Holt Memo to me at that point, but um, the, the paper trail says things to the effect of witness may well have to go right up to the Minister of Defence to make that kind of decision because, you know, but well, hey, how about trying to figure out, if you can, who this person is and this radar evidence? Is there any way you can actually find out who this is and what they know and what they saw without us compromising our own position on this case, which was effectively nothing happened and um, we don't know what it was, but it, it's no big deal. Uh, So they got themselves into a bit of a pickle then. And of course, what happened next was that the story got to the news of the world. And a lot of people think that it was us that took it to the news of the world in order to try and get money and or publicity. We didn't. Um, We actually took what we knew to the uh, Bufora conference that was being held um, a few days after we went to the Ministry of Defence, at which Dr. J. Alan Hynek was lecturing. And I I knew Alan Heinick quite a bit because we communicated and I knew he was interested in this case because I kept him up to date with it as we were going through our investigations. And we we all three of us wanted to tell him what we knew, showing the letter that I'd had from the MOD and that getting close to being able to get some documentation about this. And so what we did was we had a briefing with Alan, and several other leading UFO researchers. But we deliberately organized it for after the conference had ended that night. So it actually happened at about two or three o'clock in the morning in order to avoid any of the journalists who were at the event listening in. But some word must have got out from somebody who was there. I still to this day don't know who actually told them because the News of the World found out about it and started pestering us. Now, we didn't still want to do this. We didn't want to go anywhere near the media because we thought a tabloid newspaper like that would be a disaster. But ultimately it got out of our control and so many people were involved and other newspapers started sniffing around and somebody was obviously talking. I don't I still don't know who. And so in the end, we decided that the best thing that we could do was to cooperate with them as best we could and tell them what we knew. And um, we were also involved, who was a solicitor, who we also knew, but wasn't public knowledge at that time, had been onto the base and had a private meeting with Colonel Holt, uh, who was still on base at that time in summer of 1983, and um, had heard the tape recording, a tape recording which we knew, we had known since February of 1981 existed because that radar officer had been told about it by US Air Force personnel who visited Watton uh, to access radar information on the case uh, so it, all these pieces were slotting together um where we we cooperated to the extent that we could and there were other people involved in the case who cooperated with the news of the world so it's not actually true that all they had was uh, the whole memo because and um, although, yes, they did have a copy of that, well, it wasn't public knowledge then, um, they also had uh, the tape recording. They heard that before anybody else did, because that was on base at that time. And uh, Harry Harris had heard that uh, tape recording. Brenda Dot and I hadn't. We had not at that stage. We were not in the loop of that. But we agreed to go with them for the simple reason that it meant that we could then get the money from the news of the world by cooperating with a story that was going to happen anyway we, it was out of our control and use that to go to america which we could have otherwise never afforded and do digging into it so dot and I used what money we were paid by the news of the world which wasn't a lot it was a couple of thousand pound but it was enough for us to be able to afford to go to america and we went over there. She went uh, talking to witnesses in New England. I went and stayed with Alan and Mimi Hynek, accessed all their data, shared with them everything we knew. And then I went on a road trip across America with them and ultimately went across to um, the home of the uh, Colorado project that where the... Um, investigation into UFOs, which ultimately closed down Project Blue Book took place and talked to some of the scientists there and filled them in on what we knew about this case. And this was, of course, in in about November of 1983, uh, so before any of the witnesses were really talking. Um, And um, uh, we got the information, the information that we got from that, we used to write Sky Crash the following year. Um, which was a bit of a hodgepodge of information and bits and pieces, and it was too early to really write it, but because of the news of the world, there really wasn't much choice then because they'd already blown the gaff on the case. So um, it it was like a progress report, but it was only the starting point, and we knew it would open up a lot of floodgates and people would start coming after us, and boy, did it do so because um, we ended up under a great deal of surveillance from that point onwards, and I know that um, forces elsewhere were listening into our phone conversations uh, were tracking our mail were doing all kinds of things at first i think they suspected because it was a bit odd that three women were investigating a ufo case that in those days was pretty unheard of and they actually suspected i believe that we were involved in the women's peace movement that was at that point camped out around the American bases in East Anglia, trying to stop the nuclear weapons, which we of course knew, because we'd been told by the people involved in the case, but we weren't making public that we knew, because we knew it was important that it was kept secret, that there were nuclear weapons on bent waters. Um, so I think that's the main reason why we got a lot of attention, there. not because we knew a great deal about the case, but simply because they wanted to know what we knew. But more importantly, I think they suspected that we were aware of the nuclear weapons there and that that was the biggest secret they were trying to protect.
1: Yeah, that is really fascinating, Jenny, because that really does put a context on this, because people forget about the, um, all the, the Greenham Common protests and all, all the... Um you know, the peace movement that were camped out around some of these bases. And you can see this reflected in the documents that were released by the Ministry of Defence. So that it wasn't, um, it was the case that they, they were really concerned that this would draw attention to what was going on. Um, which is, it's something that very rarely gets mentioned in the coverage of this um, story. So at what stage did you become aware of John Burroughs, um, involvement in this then because i remember reading in one of your books somewhere they did did you not meet him at some point in the late 1980s on one of uh, the trips? yeah
0: it was, was in 87 um, i think i can't, I can't remember exactly no. uh, and i was over in uh, america doing some talks i think and um i vividly remember that um one late one night someone came to me i don't do forget who but i'm sure john will remember and said would you like to meet one of the witnesses and uh, we
3: talked for hours, didn't we, uh, about it? And um, Well, actually, I can kind of, I'll never forget it, because it was in Phoenix. you are speaking in the UFO conference. Jim Spicer was the one running it. Larry Warren was also there speaking. And um, I actually went up on stage because I really, that's the first time I met Warren. I went up with, sta- on stage with Warren for a few minutes. And then afterwards, that's when I met with you. We met over by the pool and we talked, you're right. Um, several hours about
0: the stuff that went on. Yeah, that's right. And um, uh, what struck me about that and what I've always remembered is that we were both more or less thinking about the same thing because you were asking me a lot of questions about UAP and about the energy that is created by these things and the physiological effects that were happening to witnesses. And I'd always been pursuing that line of inquiry. It's one of the reasons why I left Brenda and Dot to do most of the investigating of witnesses and cases, because I always suspected that what was going on here was beyond UFOs and was more to do with some kind of physiological energy and something that was causing actual harm to people and was... I I, I didn't get to the stage where I ever thought that this was maybe some kind of secret experiment or anything like that, but I did think it was tied into the history of the area, because I'd long known about the things that were going on in and around Rendlesham Forest, and there's a huge history, I mean, it goes back 100 years that the research has been going on in that area. It's pioneered a lot of things. It was the first area where, for instance, um, the... uh, the markings on aircraft to keep, give them a kind of camouflage was designed. Uh, that was way back in World War One. It's also where radar was pioneered before World War Two, and where, but for uh, it round there, we would have probably lost World War Two because the, the, the invasion of Britain would have probably happened without it. And so, it was a very significant area. And by chance, um, just before the Rendlesham Forest case occurred. Uh, my my boyfriend at the time, uh, one of his friends um, was aware of my interest in UFOs, and we had a conversation about something that had happened to him. And he said, "This, you know, I I was actually involved in creating the Sizewell nuclear power station, and I worked on the construction crew there." And very weird things happened. And he told me these stories about what went on whilst they were building it and how some of the men refused to go into the building because energy seemed to suddenly charge up power tools on the ground and they were running around the floor on their own with not being plugged in. And he said, we just had no idea where this energy was coming from. It was like the air was full of this charged of electricity. And it's, it, they, they actually thought it was haunted, some of the men. Um, And so he just told me this story. But this was before Rendlesham Forest, before I knew about it, before he knew about it. So there was no direct connection with that. But it had always stuck in my mind that there was this link with experiments and radar and strange things. And um, the more I looked into the case, the side of it I followed the most was like talking to the lighthouse keeper there, who told me about the strange things that he'd seen while he was in the lighthouse on his own. Could see these green glows under the ocean. And these little balls, which seemed to float up from under the water and into the air and disappear. And we'd had cases, of course, from in and around Rendlesham Forest going back into the um, early 70s, uh, particularly the event that happened um, on Sizewell Beach Power Station, where a man and his dog saw one of these green balls come out of the sea, head towards them, create all kinds of physiological effects on them. Um, made the air spell very very pungently i mean it sounds a bit like a, a ball lightning affair but it, it scared the dog to death and the, the dog ran off and the, the witness himself was made ill for several weeks and was unable to work for quite some time so these were all pre-existing the renders forest case and I, I had a feeling that there was some connection between those two things so that's what i pursued really
1: I think that's a good opportunity to ask John to sort of tell us now about the impact that he has, the, the the exposure to whatever it was he saw in the forest has had on him, both in the short and long term.
3: Yeah. And I want to add something to what Jenny said about the lighthouse. Uh, when when you get it, when you go into the book and it, it was funny early on, when the uh, story broke uh, and Ian Ripat took a look at the story and, uh, one of the things he said we mis- mistakenly thought we were seeing was the lighthouse. And the interesting thing is, is the lighthouse itself may have played a part in all of this and not the way Ripath presented it. And it was funny how that kind of kept people from looking at the lighthouse. But what I can say, and it's in detail in the book, is that when Jenny said they were developing technology there, well, they developed Radar. But they actually developed radar because uh, they found out about radar because they were working on the death ray. which led to the radar. And the original radar station was there. And and I don't know if it's still there today, but it was back in 1980. And they were actually using the frequencies that they were uh, working on with the original radar, running it up through the beacon in the lighthouse. And it was being being inland, and it was causing effects. So the lighthouse itself played a part in the whole thing and what we experienced in the phenomenon itself but going into my health right after the incident i started having issues um and they found a heart murmur and uh they basically after they found it i actually was back in the states i got taken the right pat which at the time i had no clue about what that really meant other than it was close base where i was stationed at but that is one of the top research Facilities in the world for technology and everything else. And I was tested and everything else. And I was, at first, the doctor it actually looked at me, thought I had some serious, serious at that very moment heart issues. But after he did um, an echo and some other stuff, he came back and said, You have heart damage, and we'll continue to monitor it over the years. So I went off my life. I stayed in the Air Force, um, and ended up doing 27 years. Well, in 2010, Um, And prior to that, I'd had little issues along the way. But in 2010, the end of 2010 and and early 11, I started getting really sick. And the problem was, is the um, civilian doctors who were treating me, because I was now out of the Air Force and everything, put it all together. In other words, there were symptoms, there were things going on. What they knew about my heart damage didn't match the symptoms. They were having a lot of issues, so they wanted to um, take a look at my initial testing from the military when it first was found. And just so everybody knows, I'm in the military with no heart issues, no problems, and I have proof of that. When I got out in 88 of active duty, I've got the documents to show that, that I had heart issues and problems. What came down to it is when the civilian doctors were looking at me, they couldn't figure it out. They wanted to see the initial testing, and it wasn't going to happen. The military The they Denied access to it. Went through a couple U.S. senators. In fact, the civilian doctors did some stuff to me that I didn't need because it ended up being something else. But ultimately, my records were altered. A lot of it was taken where you couldn't have access to my records. My military records are classified, and um, I mean, my medical records are classified. I still don't have access to them to this day. And, um, the uh, it basically my DD form 214 was changed. They denied at one point I was in the air force when, when I said I got injured and was hurt. But ultimately, through the work of these United States senators, and that's all in the book and described, the uh, I was able to get the care I needed along with the fact that all of a sudden the CIA showed up and they got involved in including um, dropping some classified stuff. That helped the DoD and the VA figure out what was going on. So I'm still here today because of all that. It's a big deal that went on, a big mess. And like I said, my my medical records are still classified today. And people say, "No, your your records belong to you." No, if you're in something that's classified, they don't.
1: They belong to you the United States government. Okay, um, thanks, John. That that that's really really interesting. One of the things I, what I wanted to ask you was, which you alluded to. Right at the very beginning, when you describe what had happened to you, is why do you think that the other airmen who were with you at the time have different recollections of what happened? Have you got any ideas as to why that might be?
3: Well, there's several
1: possibilities.
3: I mean, number one is is that if, you know you you covered Project Condite in in the book really well, and it's, it's it's mentioned in other areas too. But the effect of if you have an interaction with the UAP. Um, it can affect your perception, everything that goes on, number one. Number two, several witnesses and Hall themselves claims that we were brought in and um, interrogated and hypnosis and drugs were used on, it, on us. So that could also affect what we remember and how we remember. you know. So there's a lot of issues behind why, why we remember differently what went on. And, and even, like I said, with the UAP itself, the closer you get to it, the more it can alter your perception of what you see and what you remember what
1: happened. Okay, this is a question for both of you. You know the uh, the information that's emerged in more recent years. I mean John mentioned the Condine report and the involvement of this uh, mysterious character Ron Haddo, who's the author of that. Um first to you Jenny, what, what does this tell us anything new about the case? Does it take us any further in our understanding of it or the um you know the involvement of the defense intelligence staff, for instance? Well,
0: it's long, I've long suspected that the MOD were probably less interested in chasing little green men and more interested in the technological possibilities of what UFOs might allow them to do with that whatever is creating UFOs. Um, and every time I've mentioned that to people who were in some kind of influential position, I've got funny looks almost as if to say, oh, don't, don't go down that route. And um, I've had one or two people warn me that that's a kind of area where you don't want to get involved in because it's rather, fun, you know, it's not secret, blah blah blah. Um, we don't know what's going on either. Um, and this has been my I, and my view on UFOs is that uh, I don't really know what causes them, but I do know what causes ninety nine point nine 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 percent of them, and that is that they are misperceptions of something else. Um, and the genuine UFO phenomenon is actually remarkably small. It's it's not happening every five minutes all over the world. It's happening, really early. and there are probably only two or three hundred cases around the world of which this is one that are pivotal to our understanding of what might really be creating these experiences. Um, and um, when they happen, um, obviously you have to assume that powers that be around the world have got people who are digging into them and trying to figure them out and you obviously also have to assume that they are being kept as secret as possible because this is there's potentially a technology that they can develop out of this whether it's a natural phenomenon whether it's some kind of an intelligence really doesn't matter what matters is the end product that things to people it's capable of doing things that physically we can't do yet ourselves with our own science and you're going to want to know about that before potential enemies know about it so obviously there's going to be some kind of covert investigation I would be extremely disappointed and concerned if the major governments of the world were not doing that
1: okay over to you John what, what's your view of, of that what's emerged since you know more recent? right Well. To start
3: with, um, it's 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 Jenny did a good job of describing it, but the difference between like you and Jenny is I only got out of the military in 2006, and I was in you know for 27 years, and I was my towards the end of my career it was a lot more exciting than at the beginning. What I mean with what I took place, I deployed all over the world, it was involved with special op units and all that. And what started to happen was I started to see things with technology that they were utilizing and stuff that was like, wait a minute, uh, that's I, that could relate to what happened here, what could happen there, and everything else. And then also another defining moment in my life was uh, I was in DC and I was having we were having dinner and I met with the guy who was involved in straight line radar and. He was really interested in the case and was talking to me He says a lot of the effects that you described you and Jim described were things that happened to us when we when when straight line straight line radar came onto the scene and he said that you know all of his crew was dead but him and he was removed from cancer but he said that you know we had a lot of weird effects and stuff and now a lot of that was shielded and he said Straight line radar is declassified, he says, but a lot of what's in straight line radar isn't because it was moved forward another. And he says, you might want to start down the path of looking at that type of technology uh, might help you. Uh, Chuck DeCaro, who did the CNN piece, also ended up leaving CNN and going to work for the United States government in a position with a guy by the name of Andy Marshall, who was the go-to guy for advanced technology until he got retired by Obama. But he's back on the scene again quietly doing work again but ultimately um he said that people that do ufos go down the wrong path 99 of the time they look at like some hardened uh, sh- uh you know thing coming from outer space and these aliens are coming that look like us or somewhat like us and all that he said in reality it's a lot deeper and it goes with technology and how they discover things along the way just like he brought up the fact that you, you have you had uh the uh, radar was developed because of, you know, the death ray, which ends up being lasers anyway and stuff. So he he gave me stuff to look at and I started doing research. Then all of a sudden I got Condine handed to me and it was amazing. I'm reading Condine and there it says that we were exposed to UAP radiation. And like, well this report had been out for several years and why has no one ever brought that up to me or publicly? And, you know, and then started digging deeper and deeper into different technologies that have been developed and how they maybe have been developed and where it went from. And then going backtracking to Rendlesham. And the thing is, is in the book, it goes into deep detail about the facilities around the base and what they were working on at the time, which a lot of people probably this day still aren't aware of. And then you have another factor, which is a guy by the name of Andrew Pike, who was down there working on the study of the UAP. And was deep into this. And he told me a couple of things that were very interesting. He said, the fact of the matter is I'm not proud of this. He says, you know, the tunnels were brought up, how they were utilized. Well, he said they were actually using the tunnels to take EM frequencies and put them through the blast UAP." And he said the actual generators that were involved immediately after the news of the world came out were classified. They were removed from, from all documents by Thatcher herself and made unavailable to the general public. So they were studying whatever a UAP is, and I'm um, trying to figure it out to utilize it, to which including kindine says, we need to continue with this, and we need to figure out how we can develop weapons off of
1: it. Okay, so another question to both of you here is how do we move this forward are there any Is there any method that you can see whereby we might be able to bring more information to the public are there Are there documents that we can pursue are there people who haven't spoken so far? Who perhaps you know might be able to tell us some more about this, Jenny? First,
0: well, I mean, I think this is a question better answered by those involved. Um, but the reality is, when you've got witnesses experiencing a, the periphery of a phenomenon, which is mostly who we've talked to, i.e., the civilians around it, they've had, uh, they've seen things which, because of social conditioning, that UFOs are what. We all think they are from science fiction movies and so on, they then interpret in their own way and trying to distill down from that to actually what happened and what they really saw, especially years later, is all but nigh impossible because you go through so many processes and your own beliefs and ideas and things uh, churn about and change what you recall and memories are distorted by time anyway. So it's extremely difficult to base it on high witness testimony. I mean, obviously, if there are people who know what actually happened, and I'm sure there are, um, and there, and, and I do suspect that both the British and the American governments were aware of things happening, at least when prior to when they were happening. I say that for two reasons. We have information, for example, that. Um, one of the local prisons was told to keep prisoners out of sight on the night when it happened. We also know from uh, a, a naval officer who was serving on one of the ships who was happened to be moored off Orford uh, Ness at the time, that uh, they were all told to stay below deck for the night of the incident. Now, That suggests that somebody knew that something was going to happen before it happened. And that was always a key thing that got me going along this track of not thinking that maybe this was really Mm. something that happened out of the blue, that someone somewhere was aware before it happened. But of course, if this is some kind of massive secret and they have legitimate reasons, and I understand, I mean, defense of the realm, why it needs to be whatever it is that they're doing. Um, uh, people are probably going to be terrified of talking and you can understand why they would be. Um, So it's not ever going to be easy, I suspect. I think we know more now than we did many years ago. uh, And I think we're probably as close as we're ever going to get to the truth. And only with the witnesses being honest, like John is, and telling his things and writing an excellent book, which I I found fascinating, um, which I'm sure people will too, uh, are we piecing our way towards the truth? But the truth may well not be anything like what most people assumed it was going to be when this whole thing started 40 years ago.
1: Okay, John, do you want to add something to that? Yeah, I sure do. Um, One of the things that
3: it's in the book, Tina, Dave, is um, this is where I have to walk a fine line. It's just simply because that when the CIA guy showed up, And got involved with my attorney, and everything got rolling with the uh, VA, the DOD, and stuff. He uh, he put together a letter, and the letter came from him to my attorney, attorney attorney-client privilege, and to me. And reaction I got because I talked to somebody inside the technical world that was working in the government. They freaked out and said I had classified material, Um, but it moved the DOD and the VA to figure out what was wrong with me and treat me. But I used that document and some other stuff that I had to do FOIA with the MOD. And I zeroed in as I went along. And at one point I got a response from some of them. He says, good good morning, uh, John. Um, Because I used to drop it all on them on a Sunday night so they come in to work on Monday. They'd have all week or so to work on it. And he just said, "Uh, I can answer this part of your questions. My colleagues are trying to figure out how to answer the rest. But ultimately it's in the book a response I got from the defense secretary. And the interesting thing was was they threw the kitchen sink at me on why they're not going to respond to my inquiry. And you know, they gave me a a document that was 99% blacked out. But what was in the document, I kind of knew what it it led me on another path. But that point they the next inquiries I did, they well they call it section in the UK where they flat out just refused to answer any more of my questions. They just yeah. said we're done. We're not going to answer any more of your questions. We're not going to go any further with you. Because I was clearly going into a serious classified area. Even with the one I the response I got back was they basically and you saw it, they 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 read they gave me the kitchen sink on why they can't respond. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, and, I think it's called I think it's section twenty-six of the freedom of information, which is national security. And Section 27, which is anything to do with, um, you know, relationships with foreign governments.
3: Right. And, what, and one of the things they also said was this would actually affect further utilization and development of technology that they were working on. Right. So this whole cover up that they say, you know, there's no defense significance and there's no interest is, is not true. I mean, I've got a document that says it's true. And another interesting thing that we did was we did FOIA with our State Department. Our State Department admitted they were involved in the incident that took place, but they said the documents they had related to the Air Force, so the Air Force had to give permission to release them. So we go to the Air Force, the Air Force denies all documents, and says the M.O.D. has the documents, which was basically the whole memo and other stuff that you've uncovered you know, that went and revolves with Rendleson, I and mean, you talk about it in the book, but ultimately- um, it comes down to what they're working on in defense and on a couple files and they refused to comment on that or anything going forward And then the follow-up questions to the document they gave me is when they just said no more we're done We're not going any further with you And I think they were really concerned and they were trying to figure out how I got this information. You know what I mean? They just didn't understand because it wasn't a typical question response back and forth about what are UFOs? You know what I mean? It's more about how are we developing the technology that we have off of what we know about this stuff. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, they are They are paranoid because I just know from looking at the documents where they're talking about me and when I first started asking about this, they, they seriously thought that someone, presumably Ron Haddo, was leaking information to me about you know the files that had gone missing, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think they're quite paranoid actually about how people uh, know things.
3: Right, but it's deeper than that. I mean, the bottom line in what Jenny said was we've got it. I think the book helps set it up a lot better, but it even goes forward to today with that New York Times article. The people that were involved with ATIP and all this stuff are some of the same people that were involved with the Cold War stuff back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, the whole run up of UFOs before and release of technology. And what's happened now is simple. These people that I had direct involvement with got to go to some facilities to see some technology and get shown some of this stuff and what was going on, are the very people now that are now on the cutting edge of technology. And one of the things I will say, and it's in the book, was the interesting thing was Senator John McCain, before he passed, was involved with me in my settlement. And right after he was in it, and, he, and it got really intense, and Department of Justice was involved in my settlement, was the fact that um, they then went to him with a bunch of classified documents that got partly declassified on technology and where they want to go with it. You
1: know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, just, just, I mean, just sort of asking you a very blunt question at this point. What, From everything that you've learned over the years, what what do you believe it was that you saw? Was it something alien, top-secret technology, or something that just eludes explanation. I mean I'm I'm playing devil's advocate here because I think I know what your answer is, but you know, in your own words, what do you think was involved?
3: There definitely is a phenomenon, you know, and you know what and, and and they've now classified it. They've used it as a UAP. Now the part about that is interesting is is that there's all kinds of explanations why they changed it from UFO to UAP. And even in those files that they when they first said they'd reduced everything and then they got busted not doing it, was they did change it all of a sudden to UAPs. Now, the question is exactly what is it? Um, We've done our best in the book to lay out what it possibly could be based just on declassified documents and advancement of technology. But there there still is the what if. What what exactly are we dealing with? You know, what Condine said it is. It's in the book. but ultimately, there's no doubt, and I walk away from this, and I think Jenny remembers me talking about this in 88, I felt it was something that we were doing and something that was there. And the, the, the fact that they wanted to study my DNA, and they did all kinds of DNA testing and stuff, and even when they did my surgery, they got my tissue, and they sent it off to certain labs, which I have that they did, and stuff is They're trying to figure out how it affects the body, how they can develop it, um, and everything else. So can I tell you exactly what it is? No, but I can tell you there is something there, and it's being used to develop our technology. And that stuff is never going to see the light of day, other than as this technology becomes more and more available in the scene. Just like there was a recent article written about how the the TikTok, and, TikTok incident or whatever it is, that they saw stuff flying around. It Was it the plasma stuff they're working on and everything else, you know, that was what they were involved with, with the Navy and stuff. So these guys are working, they're trying to advance us, but here's the scary part to me. Okay. It's just like when they worked on the nukes and they blew them up and all the weird things that happened and stuff and, um, and the effects it had on the earth and the environment and everything else. Exactly. Number one, what effects does it has on the human body? Does it have on the earth itself? And number, and the last but the most important thing to me is, whoever figures this out will definitely have the most control there is. I mean, I I wonder if you agree with that. But if they ever get this down to the point where they can control it, both offensively and defensively, they
1: will control. They will control everything. Yeah. That's quite a sobering thought. Jenny, do you want to add anything to that?
0: Yeah, I think what's interesting is that it's probably not widely realised, but um, it wasn't just the military that started calling them UAP. Uh, The UFO community, certainly in Britain and and in Europe, has been referring to them by that name since the early 1980s. Um, Many of the books I wrote in the early 80s contain the words UAP for that reason, because we began to realise that there were two really distinct phenomena here. There was the phenomenon of public imagination, the UFO experience, which is largely, I think, uh, a product of people seeing things, being deceived by them, and the, the whole concept of aliens and visitors from other places that has created the mythology that bulk creates the ufo phenomenon as is popularly known and there is at heart something else very very few cases but a genuine physically real phenomenon that does hurt people and there are john is not the only one by any means I, i i have investigated at least half a dozen similar cases in britain where people have had the same kinds of consequences for coming into close contact with one of these uap And we used the term, I mean, uh, Paul Devereux and myself um, talked about this in the early 1980s as to why we came up with this idea, Uh, because we thought that it was something uh, that was distinct from aliens. It didn't have to presume that there was an intelligence behind it, unless that intelligence was human beings that were, but it could potentially be a force of nature something that we need to harness, something that we can tame and reap like a whirlwind and create something out of. And the military being the military, concepts will turn to what can we do with this that can give us an advantage over somebody else. And inevitably, if you do that, that creates a very good reason for why there needs to be UFO secrecy. I think it also creates a very good reason for why you see UFO investigation departments from all the different countries now disappearing because um if you're doing this as a technological thing for yourself what you don't want to do is draw attention to the fact that something else other than what you actually think is going on is really going on and it's interesting that two or three of the people who've been in charge of the mod ufo department have ended up being so fascinated by what they've seen from the evidence that they've ended up becoming ufo investigators themselves and writing books, uh, particularly in connection with the Rendlesham Forest case, uh, of course, you have um, uh, well, one of the chiefs of the MOD who came forward directly as a result of that. In fact, before the News of the World story broke, he contacted both uh, he, he contacted Brenda Butler and myself about this, and he facilitated a lot of the work that Brenda Dot and I did over the next two or three years. He introduced us to top people at the MOD. He actually created a facility where we could actually play the whole tape for the first time in public in Britain in, 19, in early 1984. Um, and he was a former head of the Ministry of Defence, and he had himself concluded that... What was really going on was some kind of energy that was being tamed and that was being used in some way to try to create weapons out of, and that there was a kind of international power struggle where UFOs were happily left to be perceived as something that they were not because that distracted attention away from what was really going on, and that was the power struggle tap this energy first and figure out what to do with it unfortunately probably more likely to be destructively rather than constructively i be human nature being what it is but um and therefore for me one it's one of the reasons why i've not exactly stepped back from ufo research i don't do as much as i did now because i think i've learned as much as i probably can and i don't think it's really my province now to get into this because this is something which potentially is 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 a necessary evil that society will have to deal with in the future. If it is a technology that's trying to be developed out of uh, what might be a natural phenomenon, which has existed for centuries and might be hurting human beings. And therefore, perhaps by doing that, we can figure out ways to tame it too and stop it from hurting human beings. So there are good things from it as well as negative things because the military will always use technology as in one way and science will use it in another so i think I, it's really ufology has gone above my pay grade now really because this is something which i'm no longer qualified to really investigate I've, i in my own mind i've figured out what's probably going on and that's enough um, and what i thought was going on when i got first involved in this many years ago isn't true uh, but what is true is equally fascinating from a scientific point of view but it's not something I'm ever going to be privy to. Consequently, I will wait and see what happens and just try and help witnesses who get unfortunately in contact with one of these things from time to time and help them through the consequences of them facing this energy which can do damaging things to the human body. That's quite clear.
1: Well, thanks to both of you. Um, I think what you've just said, Jenny, is sort of bringing me to my final question that I want to use to sort of wrap this up and put this to both of you. It's just a general one, really. It's just I'm, I'm just interested to know what you think the legacy of this incident will be in the long run. I mean, we're coming up to the 40th anniversary now. Let's imagine in another 40 years, the 80th anniversary, you know, what, what do you think people will be saying about it then? And and also just in terms of your own personal life and the UFO phenomenon itself, do you think that anything that is about to emerge or is likely to emerge will lead to some kind of disclosure? Is there anything new to emerge, do you think, or is this as much as we're ever going to know?
0: I think what's important about this is that firstly, it's rehabilitating the witnesses, because a lot of the witnesses for many years have been perceived as, you know, these guys who say they saw things. Did they really? Probably not. And the whole concept of it's either an alien spaceship or it's a lighthouse. And the truth is, we're now pretty sure it was neither. And consequently, that something actually did happen, whatever it was, means that these witnesses were honest guys who were telling the truth from the word go. And that, to me, is the biggest single legacy, because that's true of many UFO cases. Yes, there are people who make stories. Yes, I've met witnesses who've told fibs. Yes, um, sometimes you spot them, sometimes you don't. But I've always believed that at heart in this case, there was something real behind it. And um, to me, that's a big enough legacy because it rehabilitates people. I imagine one or two people on the base got in on the act and told stories. I imagine some civilians around and about did so too. And I imagine many of the stories that we collected, because Skycrash, when we wrote it, was very early in the day, far too early to really write a book about it. It was a collection of yarns, really. Um, The right time to write a book about it would be now where we can retrospectively look back and think about what we really know about it. we have learned an enormous amount. I think that's progress too, because we didn't do the same thing with Roswell, for instance. That was a similar kind of incident. But because ufology for the first 30 years or 40 years was on one track, all it did was follow the did it happen, did not it happen, did they make it up, and so on. We aren't doing that with this. We've been able to chisel our way through the facts to try and fathom out what might have really happened and it reached a conclusion in the end, which I, I hope many people who had one opinion or another about this case might be able to conclude. These guys experienced something. It was real and it hurt them. And they have a responsibility to tell their story. We have a responsibility to listen.
3: John,
1: you want to add anything to that?
3: Yeah, here's the thing. What's interesting to me is, That when this first happened, you know, we were one place, you know, as far as technology in the world and everything else, so much was going on with the advancement of technology that no one knew about, you know, that you can now find from declassified documents that lead forward to today's technology. A lot of it's starting to have to see the light of day because they've found ways to, you know, utilize it. Some of the issues from what I understand was just the energy, the generation, being able to work on it uh they sometimes had airframes but then they didn't have the ability to uh to drive it ever uh
0: you know one question i think people will be asking this is that um if um this happened 40 years ago technology goes at such speeds now uh isn't whatever they were doing or whatever was happening in 1980 now pretty much like uh you know this computer the size of a room and um in a museum rather than anything you could actually use today.
1: I just want to thank both John and Jenny for joining us um, on the 40th anniversary of this immensely fascinating uh, incident that seems to become even more baffling as the years roll by. Uh, I really appreciate appreciate, uh, both of them joining us tonight for this special um, UFO Law podcast, and thank you for listening.
2: As ever, thank you for listening. We've included a link to purchase John's new book about the Rendlesham incident, Weaponization of an Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the past hour, don't forget to like and subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. And until the next time, keep watching the skies.
0: Well, this may sound silly, but David tells me he's seen a spaceship in